Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hello, Ms. O'Toole. Hey there, Hollister. <laughs> we are actually in New York this week, and we've been seeing some uh, special screenings and lots of exciting things to do here. Before we get to this week's main events, I thought we have a lot of emails <laughs> from people, and I want to get the worst one over first. Oh, do tell. Okay, so... I don't know how many people listen to our um, singles, uh, How to Be Single oh, podcast. How Not to Be Single. Yeah, yes. exactly. So we got this email. My fiance, Chris, and I are driving home for Easter, listening to Screen Thoughts episodes, currently on How to Be Single. We didn't know Hollister could sing, exclamation point. <laughs> oh, wait, she can't. <laughs> Period. Okay, I just want to say that I put my vulnerable self out there, and I think it's highly offensive that people don't treat it with the respect that it deserves, and we're moving right along, okay? That is too funny. Yeah, ha huh, huh. I guess you won't be sending a wedding gift? Uh, no. <laughs> Maybe a little singing telegram. Not so much. Okay. Okay, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Who that just knew? rolled right off your tongue, Hollister. I know, That's because it's written in front of me. <laughs> um, okay, Anna from D.C., who is, a, we have to give full disclosure here, she's a journalist. Oh. Yeah. So Which, she said, as you've pointed out, our listeners, they're a smart crowd. Yeah, smart mm-hmm. crowd. So she says, I think you were too harsh when criticizing some of the choices, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot now. And she and meant she, both of us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, she made to the story she was reporting on. I will not deny that journalists in an environment like that are many times motivated by ambition and adrenaline, but that's not all. I believe the choices she made should be evaluated not simply considering the risks that at that moment to herself and to whomever she was around. It should also be evaluated in relation to the social impact of the news and even more importantly to the potential impact of not disclosing that information to society. Point well taken. Nice point. Mm -hmm. Really, really good point. And actually, when we were driving to New York from Boston, we went back and listened to segments of the podcast. And I totally, Anna, I totally see what you're saying. And I also just wanted to point out that she said she loves our podcast. And I say that just in the spirit of fair and balanced reporting on Anna's email. Okay, she also goes on, though, to, to speak a little bit about Spotlight. And she says, this brings me to Spotlight. And she said, in full disclosure, I was very happy the movie was the winner of this year's Oscars Awards. Anyway, I agree with Hollister. Oh, gosh, what a surprise. <laughs> Do you want to repeat that part? I agree with Hollister when she says that the movie won the award due to its message and not because of the movie experience it provides to the public. I completely agree with this, but something tells me we would describe the movie's message very differently if we developed this conversation. And the one thing I will give Spotlight is it brought the conversation back to the forefront and I also think that that conversation being back to the forefront has made Rome take another hard look and try to push forward. So something that was becoming a little stale comes back to the forefront. So that's not a bad thing. You know, I'm curious what Anna would think about the fact that the Boston Phoenix actually broke the story and went bankrupt. Not because they broke the story, <laughs> but the Boston Globe is the one that got the Pulitzer and all the credit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no one ever says credit goes where it's due. Mm-hmm. It's just... But, um, but anyway, so thanks to Anna for her, you know, amazingly intelligent remarks. And then we have uh, someone who listens to our podcast, Diane Bartlett, down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we were invited, but we were not able to go this year. We're not going to be able to go to the River Run International Film Festival this year, although we have promised that we're going to go next year. 
But I, I looked at it, it's a huge roster of films, huge roster of films. It runs for 10 full days. It starts the first week of April, and it's www.riverrunfilm.com. So if you happen to be in the area or you're going by, go take a look at it. And there was one thing that they're doing that I just think is so cool, is they're doing a Saturday morning cartoons event. I love it. I hated <laughs> cartoons growing Really? Up. Oh, never, that was our yeah. thing. And Hollister, I have a little bit of information for you. Well, this should be good. I, it, it, you know, I wanted to answer yeah, a question that yeah. you had. Okay. When we were talking about Eye in the Sky, you know, as you pointed out, we were on a little military theme there for a couple weeks in a row. And they had that camera in the shape of a bug or a wasp or a roach that could fly around the house. It was a fly, house. but whatever. A fly. It was yeah. big. And you said, you know, it made you wonder, do we really have this technology? So I asked somebody in the know whose name I cannot disclose. <laughs> right, because God but, forbid you know, somebody in government should actually speak in front that of the would camera. know this kind of thing. <laughs> and he told me not only do we have this technology, we've had it for 50 years. Well, fabulous. Interesting, huh. right? Yeah. Perhaps that's why right now we're in a windowless room. <laughs> we are in a windowless room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Now, the other thing is um, somebody asked us to start uh, reviewing more also network shows and, and, and asking what we're doing. And we're taking a look at The Real O'Neill's next week. I don't know if anybody's watching it, but we've, we're hearing really, really good things about it. So if you know anything about it, send us an email, screenthoughts at gmail.com and let us know. Um, but that's certainly one we're going to take a look at. And then one of the other ones we thought we would take a look at is... Was that crowded? Crowded, yes. Mm-hmm. On NBC, it started March twentieth. And also the catch, Shonda Rhimes' okay. new show. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So lots of uh, network TV coming up from us for sure. You know, I'm doing written reviews as well um, on ScreenThoughts.net. You can go to the my written review section, and I reviewed Nora Ephron's documentary. And I started off my review by saying that O'Toole is a huge Nora Ephron fan, and I was not so much. And so it went, after she read my review, I'm so excited that you wanted to do a little a little drive-by of the documentary. I was so excited to do it. I actually had to do the little free month trial of HBO Now. <laughs> You'd come home with some thing that you thought was the tragedy of your life. Someone hadn't asked you to dance. My mother would say everything is copy. Did my mom really believe this mantra of hers? Everyone uses his or her own life. Did you have any idea that she was sick? No. No. Not at all. Why, after being so open about everything else, did she choose not to address the most significant crisis of her life? This is the most fascinating thing in the whole world to me. She achieved a private act. The story of my life. Everything is copy. So what'd you think? Well, did you notice that Jacob Bernstein, who did the documentary, her Her son, son, of course, with Carl Bernstein, many of her own comments that he pulled out were the same ones we pulled out in our Nora Ephron tribute in the podcast that we did. I actually didn't notice that. Which means Jacob Bernstein has great taste. Well, you know, uh, one of the things I didn't mention in my written review is so Jacob, her son, did the documentary. Now, there's another son, too, Max, and then she also was married... Um, and she's married. Was married to uh, Nicholas um, Pileggi, who wrote Wise Guy and Goodfellas. Yes, and 
Um, neither of those two were interviewed, which I thought was odd at the time. And then since then, I've read something that one of the big criticisms is that it's, it's a wonderful documentary and certainly covers much of her life. But to have those two people left out when even, you know, Bernstein is interviewed. Well, they chose not to be in it. Yeah. And I saw an interview that Jacob Bernstein gave in New York, and he said his brother had a very personal relationship with Nora Ephron and wanted to keep that relationship private. But he said that Jacob is a journalist, just as Nora Ephron had been, and he wanted to express himself in a more journalistic way. By the way, he opens it beautifully in talking about the difference between what his mother wrote and what he writes. As a journalist, he observes while his mother talked about what she experienced. Though she was quite the observer. And even Rob Reiner said she was the premier observer of male-female relationships. So did you learn anything? First of all, being an expert, as I think you are, and Nora Ephron in general, did you learn anything new? I liked the story about how her parents met. And again, they were both writers. It was a the, cute, cute sweet. The, yeah. That's right. The day they met, their father proposed to the mother. And before the mother responded yes or no, she said, can I read your work? <laughs> and I thought that probably was a portent of things to now, come. By the way, he was a writer, and then he wasn't he wasn't getting anywhere. And they, they go over mm-hmm. this in the documentary. And then she said, well, screw this. And she stepped in and started writing with him. And that's when they actually became successful and headed out to Hollywood. But I love that she was way before her time in terms of, you know, not just sitting home and waiting for him to make it work, you know. That's right. And then all four of their daughters became writers. Right. One of the best things about it, which I tweeted, but I didn't put in my written review, was Meg Ryan. I don't consider Meg Ryan to be a purveyor of very intellectual commentary on things. I, you know, I don't, first of all, she doesn't do many interviews, period. I, I was going to say, exactly. I've not heard her. Yeah, she's not a spokesperson for much of anything, and she's interviewed really well, in, I think, in this mm-hmm. documentary. And I loved her line. She said about Nora Ephron, her allegiance to language um, was more than to your feelings. It was very well put. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, she starred in so many of Nora Ephron's greatest hits. And only Meg Ryan can make a comment like that, and and it doesn't, it, and you don't feel like she's saying that the person's me. <laughs> Which really, you know, it's really not a, it's not a compliment in my mind, but she sort of said it as if it were. Don't you think? Um, it brought up many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any comments you want to make around it? Well, one of the things that I thought was most striking was when they interviewed Liz Smith, the columnist. And when Nora Ephron was writing about her divorce from Carl Bernstein, she sent the information to Liz Smith and said, publish it. Yes, she did. Yep. And Liz says she actually emailed back or, or, or called or whatever they did back then and said, are you sure? And she said, yes, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes I wish my husband were dead. Sure, sure. Nora Ephron's first novel, Heartburn, has gossips and book critics alike asking, Nora, is this your life? It's the craziest divorce ever. She cried for six months and wrote it funny. In writing it funny, she won. And I often forget that Mike Nichols was the one who directed Heartburn. Uh, oh, yeah. Carl Bernstein said yeah. he was a signatory on the divorce in a way that they were arguing over child custody and the screen adaptation of the book. Yeah. You know, it was so miscast. It should not have been Nicholson. It should have been Dustin Hoffman. Didn't you tell me it was originally Mandy Patinkin? 
It was Mandy. Yes, yes who's that's right. Off I can really see that. Yeah. Well, Mandy's too large. You know, you know, everybody. Carl Bernstein is such a major personality that there has to be some likelihood that the two people are the same. And I never really related Heartburn to their story because Nicholson is just so miscast as Bernstein. You know, and so by the way is Meryl Streep. She, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, and Dustin Hoffman. No offense, Meryl, great actor, but well, not so it's much interesting there. to me because Meryl Streep reads the audiobook version of Heartburn, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and yet I did not enjoy the movie. No, but no. it's just it was Miss Cat. You know, they just didn't get the right people in there. And I also wonder how much of that was Nora misreading who she is. <laughs> And yet I'm presuming that Mike Nichols was in charge of casting. Uh, I think she had a a say in pretty much everything around that. I don't know. And Mike Nichols had directed Silkwood, which Mm -hmm. was one of her first big screenplays, co-written, which Meryl Streep had started, A mutual admiration society going on there. Mm -hmm. Now, since, by the way, since reviewing it and writing, I've had a number of friends bring it up with me. And apparently a lot of people have already seen this documentary, and they're talking about it. And people who knew her who said she was really, really... Not a nice person. Unless she was being a nice person. <laughs> there were many examples of her being an incredibly nice person. Yeah. And then she, um, but she was so talented and so smart and gave everything to an opinion that you would ask her for that, you know, she was a sought after person to be in people's lives. And I think, you know, it just talks to complexity of trying to be authentically your honest self and at the same time not totally undermining other people around it. Well, they had a great excerpt of her, Nora Ephron herself, saying that writers are cannibals. It was when she was being interviewed by Charlie Rose, and Charlie Rose said, right, there's this predatory nature to writers. Writers are cannibals. <laughs> yes. They really are. They eat their own. And if you are friends <laughs> with them and you say anything funny at dinner or if anything good happens to you, you are in big and trouble. And you know from where you speak. She was a very smart filmmaker, writer, reporter. Really true comic writing is impossibly hard. And she had it. I wanted to make her laugh. It was just like winning an Oscar. And I was thinking about it, even watching this documentary, her son, by making the documentary, certainly turned a lot of family interviews into comedy. Right, right, absolutely. absolutely. I also thought Sheila Nevins, who's behind this documentary, of course, in charge of HBO documentaries, She's had quite a run of approaching famous people in their own right and asking them to do documentaries about their mothers. So she approached Rory Kennedy, the documentarian who made Ethel, about Ethel Kennedy. And this year, we just saw it down in Miami, Anderson Cooper's documentary about his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, Nothing Left Unsaid. You know, I love a documentary, and I love one that shows real footage. And, you know, so for me, you know, I was all in. So I'm glad you saw it. I'm I'm definitely glad glad I saw it. It was like having Nora back for 90 minutes. Oh, yeah, it was. Bye, Nora. We're going to go from goodbye to hello. Hello, my name is Doris. Can you be honest with yourself? He's barely old enough to vote. You're just jealous because I'm having fun and doing things with other people and not just you. Your husband died 15 years ago. Move on. You have packets of duck sauce in your refrigerator from the 1970s. It keeps. I'm awake. Take it from the top, Hollister. (laughs) Okay, I get get to take it from the top because Mm -hmm. I grew up with the flying nun. Oh. Sally Field, to us at that generation, you know, she was the first 
Uh, Girl Next Door you saw on television. Did you ever see Gidget? I've never seen Gidget. Yeah, of course I did. I was surprised when I looked it up that it was canceled after one season. Because I feel like everyone knows the name Gidget, even if they saw it or not. You know, back then, I think TV shows, it wasn't about how many people watched them. It's about who was willing to sponsor them and what they were willing to pay. Oh, interesting. And I don't think they could get great... You know, and the sponsors, by the way, were things like Tide. Oh. Things your mom was going to buy to clean things. <laughs> like it your really starched habits. Well, it was. It was your <laughs> vacuum cleaners and your Tide. And, it, and, and oh, by the way, those moms on those commercials were so happy with all the cleaning they were doing. Cleaning when there were weird. commercials. I know. I know. And every commercial, as I recall, every commercial was about cleaning something. Uh, which actually, we should something we should look into. What is the percentage of commercials in the early '60s and late '50s that surrounded cleaning products? I bet it was very high yeah. because they were so proud of all their inventions. Well, Gidget the and her friends machine. were not cleaners. What did they do on that show? Well, they were partying from college. And oh, stuff. that's what they did. Yeah. You see before you me, Gidget. For 15 and a half years, my life was a complete and total ick. But then I fell in love. With two things. Jeff, my moon doggy, and surfing. She went from being a party girl to a flying nun? Uh, she, I don't know which was first, I can't remember. Flying nun was second. Okay, there mm-hmm. you go. So, But anyway, I've admired her work, and you were not a fan after uh, Brothers and Sisters. You didn't like that show. I thought her character was a little creepy that she was a mother that interested in her kids' sex lives. Okay, well, here we go again. We always have this argument of openness for sex, or should it be buying I'm just door? saying, a mother being that interested, there's other people on the planet to talk to about that kind of thing. Okay, so you are not... Well, by the way, I don't... She didn't write the show. She just was the mother. I hope I don't end up like one of those weird old New Yorkers that chokes on a peanut and dies and no one even misses me. I would say Hello, My Name is Doris is a tremendous acting showcase for Sally oh my Field. God, she is so good. It is probably my favorite Sally Field role. Well, you know, you know I went through some of my favorites. So Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, I liked her in Murphy's Romance with Murphy's James Romance, Garner. Exactly. And Not Without My Daughter. Oh, you know, I never saw that. Well, Not Without My Daughter was a really serious role for her, mm-hmm. and she, the edginess and the angst and the fear that she was able to portray was really, really well done. Now, mm-hmm. um, what about Norma Ray, her Oscar-winning turn? Uh, you know, I thought she was amazing in Norma Oh, Ray. I was still sad that the, it didn't go to Bette Midler for The Rose. Um, you know, I'm just saying. Wing beneath my wings. Or wi- <laughs> Wind beneath my whatever. wings. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I think this is by far and away her best role. It's a great role yeah, for her. Yeah, it's a great role for her. I also thought there were a number of times in this movie where I was so uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the tension and with the pain and with every. And one of them was when she's telling him what she has done. When she confesses, oh, yes. Okay, uh-huh. it was almost unbearable. I yes. almost, and I, I can't remember a time in the last five years in a movie theater where I couldn't. I knew what she was going to do, and I was like, "Please, God, don't do it. I don't want to sit through this part." I, I was looked cringing. away. It was oh. that, and when they were playing the drinking game, I never. I yeah. thought, I don't know what she's about to say, yeah. but do you think Doris's are out there? Well, it's an extreme case because while it was a great acting showcase for her, I felt as though there was a little bait and switch in the story arc. Mm. So just when the story was cresting ebullient, for example, with the photo shoot, which I loved that scene of her in her hot pink pants. Oh my love, 
Doris? Your outfit is fierce. I dress seasonally and monochromatically. What's your method, Doris? I, I don't have a method. You're a true original. Why, thank you. Niles and I are looking for a model to be on the cover of my new album. Oh. Niles, can you get our digits? Get my what? We need your phone number. Have you got a pencil? No, nah, nobody has pencils anymore. And the expressions on her face and her body language, Sally Field really nailed that. And all of a sudden, the, the arc... Just, it's like they took it out of one hand and put it in the other, like a shell game, and said, now this is about heartbreak and hoarding, and she's back to being a very sad sack, sadder than you ever knew she was. They did not transition well. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of points to bring out in this movie, and they didn't transition between them well. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think the scene transition, it's funny, you don't notice scene transition when it's done really well. When you notice how difficult it is to do it is when it's not done well, and I think this was a good example of that. Well, again, if you take the first part of the movie, and Time Daly, who I always love, she could Amazing. really deliver a line. It's like somebody stole my friend and replaced her with a wild animal. So when she looks at Sally Field and says, yeah, and you're taking dating advice from a 13-year-old, very well delivered. I thought this story has a lot of great life lessons about it's not over till it's over. You should never stop living. And then just as I thought this is going to underscore all these themes, they turned around, I felt, and torpedoed her character and made her the caricature of the cat lady. Well, you know, it starts off with him saying, you wearing cat glasses? You yeah, know? two pairs. One right. pair did not suffice. I will tell you that, I, you know, there are a lot of... of, of issues facing Americans today, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the way we eat or, but hoarding is a new generational thing in the last 20 years. Now, sure, there was the woman down the street, the odd woman down the street occasionally, and she had too many, you know, newspapers in her houses, but hoarding as a disease is just emerged in this latest generation, mm-hmm. not in terms of the new generation coming up as a hoarder, but in terms of hoarding being something that people are doing I'm not sure what's causing it, but I thought the portrayal of hoarding, which I never really understood before, mm-hmm. all of a sudden became totally understandable. And I could not only empathize with the hoarder, but I could say, oh, I can see how this could happen, which I've never been able to do before. And God knows, you know, I remember an, an Oprah episode on hoarding, and it was like, oh, just throw this stuff out. What's wrong with you? And I really, really could see why holding on meant so much. And I thought they did that beautifully. Well, this goes to my point, though, about the bait and switch yeah. with the story arc. Yeah. Is I thought they should have dropped a clue earlier that it was going to be about hoarding. All of a sudden, it came in like this big elephant yeah, in but Act I don't think it two. was about... It was, hoarding was... There were a bunch of adjectives that, that added up to the film. The, the film was also a, added to her cat lady caricature. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was talking to my sister about the film, and my sister's an actor. And she, and had she a, came with us to see it, by the way. She had a very interesting note because she said that she thought one was overkill. So while the wardrobe for Sally Field I thought was fabulously quirky. I thought it was awful. <laughs> well, okay, then you're probably not liking the outfit I'm wearing right now. <laughs> but my sister was saying that outfits were quirky enough to show that she's a character. But to play it awkward, to have the crazy outfits, and to be a hoarder, one of those things was one thing too many. And I totally... Oh, that's interesting. I totally was a, agree with her. You don't have to hit me that hard with it. Because what I think would have made it an, a better movie is if they had given her a clear strength. So, for example, the love interest, played by Max Greenfield from Ugly Betty... He comes in as a creative director. It would have been interesting to have Sally Field's character show some creativity where they could bond on that level. 
as opposed to she just thinks he's a good-looking guy. Mm -hmm. So my favorite scene was when the musician asks to meet her backstage, and he wanted her opinion. And I thought, here is a great opportunity for her to say something so smart that they appreciate her wisdom. Yeah. Well, I don't know that she had the life experience to be wise. And yet, this is very interesting because the film was based on a short film called Doris and the Intern, which made me think, of course, of the movie The Intern. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the setups, they're pretty similar. Robert De Niro is the older guy who goes into an office and is working with 20 and 30-somethings. They made him the man of experience, the pillar of wisdom from whom everyone else could learn these old-school lessons. And with Doris... There wasn't any of that, and it yeah, was but, in the wrong but he order. he had had a life. Doris never had a life and success, and she had taken care of her mother. That's what she did. And his wife had died, so he was also mourning and coming back from a huge loss. Okay, so here, you want to know something interesting? So, yeah. so this film, which, by the way, is very rich, and we can debate a million issues around it, but also... I, you know, I think it's. I think it was a great film in many ways. And uh, another person, Diane, who listens to our podcast, she said she thought it was a sweet film, and and she told me that I happened to open this email just as I was sitting down before you arrived to see the film, and I would never describe it as sweet. Oh really? I think I Sally felt infused the character. Yeah, but I was so pained by the difficulty around her that I I found that really hard to hard to stomach the word sweet along with it. But also, it was shot in three weeks. And she was a sweet stalker. <laughs> He's very different than me. It just seems impossible. You need to find common interests. He's on Facebook. Let's make a fake account. She stalked him on Facebook. She stalked him in real life. I mean, not in real life. She stalked him she in person. She was a chameleon. She knew how to behave. She knew, I don't know if she was a chameleon. She stood out. No, what I mean is she was a chameleon in not letting people know what she was really thinking. Like when her brother is at the, when they're at the funeral and her brother's saying, you know, you need to, she doesn't turn to him and say, you know, you're evil. She keeps that to herself. She learned to keep her feelings submerged for her whole life. And they start to emerge as she falls in love with this did, guy. But anyway. Did you think the brother was evil? Yeah, I did. I didn't think so. I thought he played it really well. I didn't like his wife, but again, I thought that was a caricature. Anybody, any brother whose sister has taken care of the mother all the way, all through these years, who at the funeral says to her, we have to talk about moving you out because he wants the money and his wife's pressing him, is an evil guy. Unless he also thinks it's for her good because Uh, she's a hoarder. And he knows she needs a new start. I, yeah, okay, you I know. think he played it well that he wasn't totally evil. Oh, I don't think he was totally evil, but I mm-hmm. think there was a side to him that was not caring about her at all. Absolutely not. But he seemed very caring, even in their great showdown. Well, look, as with all sibling relationships that are complex, you know, there was the complexity of he did care, and he also had tremendous guilt, which came in the end. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but here's what's interesting. Okay, the L.A. Porsche, it was all shot indoors in L.A. It took three weeks to shoot it in L.A. And then they shot for only three days for the outside outside scenes in New York. It was an indie film. Sally Field's first indie film. I'm going to say it again. Mm -hmm. Why are are we doing any major... uh, Indie films are ten times better. I definitely prefer stories that focus ah, on character. The best. Mm -hmm. Absolutely the best. So I personally would give this a for-sure viewing... 
And I think you should go with different generations because I think each generation was interestingly meshed there. But I think it could have been stronger, yeah, what yeah. the generations learned yeah. from each other. I felt like her office mates were kind of... Not well, that, cruel, yeah, but then all of a sudden, suddenly yeah, they like yeah. her. No, it could, you know? Yeah, I definitely think it could have been stronger, and I definitely think it's worth seeing. Um, but I, mm. I wish that there were some plot points that had been more sympathetic. Um, and I wish that she and Max Greenfield had bonded over something like creativity. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. It's tight quarters. I like your glasses. But then she wouldn't have been her. But what was she it was she pencil, liked about him she was exactly? He looked at her, and he looked in her eyes, and he was the only man who had well, done that was, in 35 he years. He was smushed up. But see, that made her too pathetic, because he was smushed he up was against pathetic. her in an elevator, which is my point. I don't think she had to be that How could that they possibly pathetic? have a creative moment when she had pushed pencils for 40 years? If, if, if a person has thoughts when they're in that position, psychologically, they wouldn't be in that position. But she feel still about could her. be an introvert and have rich internal thoughts. So as she's having these fantasy sequences a la Allie McBeal, which were funny, she could have carried over that fantasy life in a way where you could have gotten a double punch you have for to your have money. life experience to be able to have those kind of fantasies. But she had... She had no life experience. She had a big heart. And so to have a big heart, how is it you become a Facebook stalker and the crazy she, she in-person two, stalker? Two or three people she knew in her life, and that was it. She had a best friend. She cared for her mother. She had a job she held down. It's not a life. It's the life of many, really. No, it's a life with no outside knowledge or experience. The, the same. I don't know. She's riding the Staten Island Ferry every day. She works in New York City. She, she comes, she, she goes. Rides, she survived in a world of 20-somethings. She rides the empty Staten Island Ferry every day. And that ferry's not empty. Well, in, in this movie it is. Because they made her such a sad sack. She, she couldn't a, be surrounded by people. She was a sad sack. I'm saying she was too much of oh, a I, sad I, sack. I felt like... I felt like I told you it was very painful, mm-hmm. but I, I felt like somebody who has let every single day be the same, lived a life totally inside rooms, which is what why you need to hoard. You you know you, you have to create something like that. One ski. Point being, you know, that is a really long time to be imprisoned in a routine life that has no outside excitement or interest. I mean, even talking about Thanksgiving, I thought they layered that in brilliantly, where the where the granddaughter is saying, well, I don't know why we're having this conversation about Thanksgiving. It's the same exact thing every year, with the same people with the same conversations. The other people around her did not strike me as happy either. No, of course not. Which is why I think they should have dropped some of these points earlier but to what? make that contract with the audience that I knew it was going to have a lot of sad passages. Why do they need to tell you that? Because the tone is, okay, here's sad sack Sally Field. It gets ebullient, and then, surprise, she's even sadder than you knew. What did you think of the ending? Uh, it's the only part I really, really didn't like. I thought it was stupid. Because again, they tried to make yeah, but it I happy think, you again? Don't have to t- well, no, because I don't know. We don't know if she was happy again. We have no idea what he was going to say to her at the elevator. Do your due diligence and tie the ribbon properly. You know, that, that to me is like, okay, we ran out of time. We only had three days to Which shoot. Which is how I feel about the middle. Yeah, I didn't feel that way about the middle. I thought it was great. Yeah. I think it was a bait and switch. I didn't think so. Be prepared for heartbreaking is it, it's, my point. It's a very painful movie to sit From through. From the trailer, you wouldn't necessarily know that it can really but go into heartbreaking. But I don't think every movie should entertain me in a way that doesn't make me feel bad. You know, I... No, I agree. It's just that I don't want to feel such a jolt 
in the layout of the story structure. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I thought the transitions were difficult, and maybe that's because they ran out of editing time. I don't know, but. And I'm not asking for the typical romantic comedy happy ending. I'm not asking for that, but it would have been nice to give her more of a strength. Yeah, I. You know, again. Um, it, it, but a lot of people are talking about this film. I can and, see why. And a lot of different generations are going. And we were just actually speaking with somebody where we are now today, and he came in and he said that um, that he can't wait to see the movie. And he's twenty. He's a millennial. And I thought that's really cool. And I'm going to ask my daughter. She's a millennial too. She's going to go see it as well. Um, other people we should give shout outs to Peter Gallagher Great. played the inspirational speaker, yeah. and I'm sure you noticed the hoarding therapist yes. from Grey's Anatomy, I know. Jane Doe, the one Alex gave a new face yeah. to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the way, your face is looking better and better. <laughs> and the winner is Sally Field in Places in the Heart. I haven't had an orthodox career. And I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time I feel it. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I do have to give a shout out to Sally Field that she was really one of the first who was able to transition from TV into film. Nowadays, we take that for granted, but she was a pioneer. By the way, no, but now they do it a lot, but back then, nobody did it. Nobody did it. She really, she opened that door that George Clooney and so many others then went through. She also talked about becoming a woman actress in the 50s, you know, the late 50s, and she said life was very boring. It was the only thing that she felt could bring any excitement to her life. Oh, no. Was she Doris in real life? No, no, no. No, but she, as a young person, she just felt like she looked at these women and she thought they had very boring lives, meaning, you know, where they're watching TV looking about all the detergent they can buy. Oh. Yeah, so it's very, I thought that was very cool. I want to add one last uh, email that we got from somebody on Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and that's Alan from New York City, who said that he thought that, um, that Tina Fey can only write in 20-minute segments. She can only keep his is entertaining comedic attention for 20-minute segments, and so that's why 30 Rock was good, and even when she was on the, the Academy Awards, and he feels that doing anything longer is when she becomes weaker, and I thought that was a really interesting It's a comment. very insightful yeah. point. For example, yeah. her film Date Night with Steve Carell I think would have been a very funny 20-minute skit. Exactly. It's a great point, Alan. Nice point, Alan. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want you to know that I did go home and clean up my closets because I don't want to be considered a hoarder. <laughs>